good to be with you this morning. My name is Josh Malloy. I'm from Sojourn Church down in Perry, Georgia. And uh, it's just an honor to be here. It's my first time worshiping with you guys. I know Jamie very well. We're a part of the Acts 29 network together every month. A group of us pastors get together to connect, share our lives, brotherhood, and stay on mission uh, with our churches. But it's an honor to be here. It's an honor to preach uh, the Word of God. The passage we're looking at today uh, that James read earlier from Colossians 1 is just mind-blowing. So pray we be filled uh, today. It's also an honor just to serve Jamie, just to give him uh, another week off from preaching. Because here's Here's the deal, preaching and all, it's the, it's the preparation that it takes to preach. It takes one hour to preach and about 20 to 30 hours to prepare. And I'm not sure if, if everyone is acquainted with how much emotional, spiritual, mental strain it is to preach week in and week out. And here's, here's the deal, to be honest, I don't know either. I'm the music guy. I'm like James. And so I've, I, I preached throughout the year at our church and here's what I've come to know. Singing is way easier than preaching. All, all the time. It is way easier. Because here's the deal. Preaching is so much thinking. It is so much analyzing. Figuring out how to get the text of the word of God to fall into everyone's laps and apply it to them. We're singing. We just close our eyes. We sway to the beat. It's, it's emotional. It's atmosphere. And then you got preaching. So what I tell uh, Jason who's our primary preaching pastor at Sojourn Church. I say the same thing to Jamie today. If I had your job, I'd waste away. I'd be burnt to a crisp. I wouldn't make it. So honor to you guys that do this week in and week out. So Jamie, kick back, relax today, sip on some coffee, get comfortable, and hear the word of the Lord. So back home at Sojourn, uh, one of the things, we have developed like a little mini mission statement inside of our big mission statement that's basically just for the volunteers that are, that are serving inside the, the, the service, whether it's on stage or in, in the media booth. And that simple mission statement is to put God and the gospel on display. That's what we're trying to do is just create an atmosphere to showcase God, who he is, his character, his accomplishments, and what he's done, and showcase the gospel. And that's through everything that we do, live streams, sermons, preaching, reading of scripture, prayer, singing, everything is to showcase King Jesus and the gospel. And so today we're going to look at the first section of Paul's letter to the Colossians where that's what Paul is doing. He's showcasing God and the gospel. He's putting it on display for the believers in Colossae. And there's going to be a lot of good news proclaimed in this room today. So let me pause just for a second and address some of us that are in this room. If you're beat up and limping into this service today because life has just been so difficult, there's good news for you to hear today. If you're weary with shame from losing battle after battle, from, from temptation, there's good news today. I'm glad you're here. If you're confused about what you believe about spiritual things and you're just trying to figure it out, I'm glad you're here. There's good news today. Maybe you've been burned out by the church and by church people and, and you being here today is kind of a way to start dipping your toe back into the water. There's good news you're gonna hear today. Maybe you just had an argument with your spouse 
yell at your kids in the car on the way to church. I know Sunday morning with trying to wrangle kids and get everybody ready and teeth brushed and dressing out the door can be sometimes a nightmare. It can be very difficult. If that's where you're at, I'm glad you're here. It's good news today. Maybe you're having the best week of your life. Everything's champagne and confetti. Everything is successful. Everything you touch turns to gold. And I'm glad you're here. And there's going to be good news today. Good news is even better than your circumstances. So whatever your situation is, whatever shape you're in, we're going to put God and the gospel on display through Scripture, through the words of the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can encounter him and his boundless grace for broken weary sinners like us. So let's get to our text. Paul is writing this letter with Timothy to the church in the city of Colossae. Now remember, just a few things before we get into reading it. The Bible is a powerful book inspired by the Holy Spirit. And its depths are deeper and its heights are higher than even the, the greatest theologians could fully navigate. But for all of us normal-minded people that are sitting in here, let's remember that God used real people to write down the scriptures that would be received and read by other real people just like us. So let's be fascinated by the scripture, but not intimidated. Colossians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I love what we just saying. Something about the, the hope we have for tomorrow helps us fight through today. Hope is so powerful. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. That's a powerful line right there. We have not ceased to pray for you, Paul says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. So as we're approaching our, our text, 15 to 23, this is, this is the way Paul starts his letter. That him and Timothy are expressing how thankful they are to God for these believers. They're living by faith. They're believing the gospel of grace. They're living in light of the hope of heaven. They're loving each other as a gospel community. And Paul and Timothy are continuously praying some very powerful things. If you struggle to pray for people, just wondering what you should pray. Man, start copying some of the things that Paul's praying right here. He's, he's praying that they know God's will, that they bear fruit and live a life that pleases the Lord, that they increase in the knowledge of God. What a prayer. That they have strength and endurance and joy, that they're always aware and thankful for God and the gospel. So that's how he starts his letter. Let's get to verse 13. 
He says, he, speaking of the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. So as as usual, when Paul writes, if you're familiar, if you've read some of Paul's letters, he gets very Trinitarian when he's writing, and sometimes it's hard for us to keep up. So let me just pause and address one of the the most mysterious ideas of all time, the, the Trinity. So theologians have packaged this idea of the Trinity in three simple statements, and I added a fourth. Not that I'm in the same ballpark as them, but just... They can't stop me. I just added a fourth. So number one said, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's one. You're like, okay, we're good there. Two, each person is fully God. Heads start to kind of twist a little, but we're tracking. Three, there is one God. That's where the mystery and the the mind exploding starts happening. And four, the one I added, don't ask any questions. That's all we know. One, two, three, four is, that's it. If you got questions, talk to Jamie afterwards. I'm going to preach and just hit the road. That's the beauty of guest preaching. Is you leave all the ministry to the local pastors. It's beautiful. So Paul tells us that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of who? His beloved Son, Jesus, the Son of God. So now Paul's going to spend the next verses showcasing who Jesus is. He's like, let me tell you, let me stop for a second and tell you who Jesus is, the magnitude of who Jesus is. So let's dive in. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul is putting Jesus on display. And he's got eight things in this little paragraph, eight things, eight bullet points, eight features that he wants to showcase and wants his readers to know about Jesus before he moves forward in this letter. So let's look at him. Number one, he's the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3 tells us he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Scripture refers to God as invisible in several places. God is spirit with no bodily form. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He writes, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Also in Hebrews, in the hall of faith, chapter 11, says, by faith, speaking about Moses, by faith Moses left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This concept of invisible can be be difficult, though, 
for us very, very concrete people to, to really embrace and, and take in. This is why I hate electricity. I mean, I appreciate electricity. I'm glad we're not in the dark, but I hate messing with it. Anybody, any electricians in the room? No? See those hands? Two, two young uh, apprentices, I think we got back there. I hate electricity because you know what a dead wire and a live wire look like? Exactly the same. Exactly. If I got to change a light bulb, I'll go shut every breaker off in the entire building just to swap one thing out. I can't stand it. One time I uh, was moving into an apartment. You know, sometimes when you move into an apartment, you have to change out your dryer cord, three prong, four prong, something prong I've never seen before. So I'm trying to figure out if my prong is right. And so I pull this out of an old like, box that's been in the attic. And I'm going up to like see, that looks about right. What I didn't know is all the other ends of the prongs were all in a big knot together. So I come up and about lose my life, about to get electrocuted. A gigantic blue Star Wars type arc comes out and almost tries to kill me. But this idea of invisible, speaking of electric, let's get back to the text, I'm sorry. Speaking of invisible, it's tough for us to embrace that sometimes because it's so concrete, but God is invisible. But Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews said it's the exact imprint of the nature of God. If you look at Jesus, you see Jesus, you see God. Matthew Henry says this. I should have just went straight to this. I'm here mumbling about electricity. Matthew Henry says, Christ in his human nature is the visible discovery of the invisible God. He that's seen Christ has seen the Father. Therefore, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. God the Son, God incarnate, God in the flesh, God walking the earth literally. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. That's why I often encourage people, look, if you're just hungry to know God and want to know about God, just go dive into Jesus. Go look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul says. Secondly, he's the firstborn of all creation. Jesus, Paul says, is the firstborn of all creation. Now you may be saying, wait, that sounds really familiar what the Jehovah Witness person came and knocked on my door last Saturday and said. Are you saying he's a created being? No. This is very much different. The Jehovah Witness theology adopts an ancient heresy dating all the way back to a pastor in Egypt named Arius around 300 AD who claimed that Jesus, the Son of God, was a created being and did not exist eternally as God. But what I love about, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Pastor Matt Chandler, the president of our Acts 29 network, he often says the only problem with that idea is the Bible, all of it. John 1, 1 and 2 says, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy walking the earth, he was in the beginning with God. When Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's referring to the position, like a role, a position of authority that would culturally belong to a firstborn son, like an heir. The ESV commentary says this, it would be wrong to think in physical terms here, talking about firstborn of all creation, as if Paul were asserting that the son, Jesus, had a physical origin or was somehow created rather than existing eternally as the son with the father and the Holy Spirit in the Godhead. What Paul had in mind was the rights and privileges of a firstborn son, especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. Jesus, Paul says, 
is the firstborn of all creation. He rules over all creation with absolute authority, absolute sovereignty. There's no one who ranks above him. His reign is supreme. I love the section of uh, the song called What a Beautiful Name. In the bridge, it just makes this grand proclamation. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. Nothing can stand against. He's the firstborn of all creation, reigning and ruling supremely. And it just keeps going. Number three, Paul says, he created all things for his glory. Look at the text, Colossians 1.16. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Scripture specifically says that Jesus was creating everything. Jesus. Have you ever thought about Jesus creating the universe? This wasn't on my radar. I grew up in the church, and that was like the idea of Jesus being included in the Godhead, creating the world, just was, was not something on the radar. You know, the four gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the life of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and ascension. But Jesus, Paul says, has eternally existed in the Godhead. And the Bible says Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Look at John 1, 3, elsewhere. All things were made through him, through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 1, 1, the first line in our book, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that word, in the Hebrew for God, there is Elohim, God in its plural form, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.26, later it says, then God said, let us. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So Jesus created everything that has been made, Paul says, from the smallest atom to the largest galaxy for the purpose of displaying his glory. Number four, he's before all things and holds all things together. Now, Jesus is before all things in a couple of ways, like we've already mentioned. Paul said he's above and, and over and in charge and supremely reigning over everything. He's before in that way. And he also said he, he's before in that he existed before. He was literally before all things. He spoke it all into being. But now Paul says that Jesus is holding all things together. Back at Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The magnitude of this idea is just mind-blowing. It's mind-melting. Just trying to even grasp what's going on, it's difficult. But let's give it a shot. You ever thought about how many things are simultaneously happening in our universe, just all at once? First of all, we don't even know how big it is. We have no idea how big the universe is. We've got some really great technology and Hubble telescopes and all this stuff that you see on the Sci-Fi Channel. We've got great stuff. We can see a long way, and what we see when we look as far as we can is it just keeps going further. We have no idea 
This, this thing is, is huge. There's so much going on. And think about earth. Our little tiny little, little earth that we live on that's getting swallowed up by this gigantic universe and galaxies. We're sitting here on a rock called earth. And this rock is spinning and flying through outer space at rapid speeds. I mean, we're in here in this room just sitting here like it's normal, just sitting here, just hanging out. Now, we're on a rock in outer space, whipping around and flying around this fireball called the sun. And somehow, it's all in just the right order to where we can come in this building and just hang out like it's just completely normal. Think about the human body. There's so many complex systems going on in our bodies just to keep us alive and functioning. There's a lot going on in just one individual person much less the whole universe and all the galaxies. One person, there's a lot going on in this body. And sometimes the greatest doctors we've got on the planet, the smartest people alive, just have to step back and go, I don't know anymore. That's all we know. We've done all we can. Paul paints the picture that Jesus, with his sovereign power, is holding the entirety of creation together. That's power. That's unimaginable power, total power, mind-blowing power. Jesus is before all things. He holds all things together. Let's just stop for a second. Let's take a break. Jesus, this Jesus Paul's writing about, that we're talking about, isn't just the carpenter's son who lived the life of a homeless man and was a good teacher who could draw a crowd. My job is, is, is not a salesman trying to get you to buy a Jesus product. There's no sales pitch needed for something of this magnitude. This is huge. This is powerful. I'm just kicking the door open and displaying the majesty saying, look in here. Look at this Jesus. Almost like a real estate showing a mansion to someone. There's really not much to say. It's incredible. Just look around. This Jesus is unmatched. Are you hearing what Paul's saying about Jesus thus far? The greatness of his glory is unsearchable. His power cannot be measured. There's nothing that compares with Jesus. And we're only halfway through the list. Paul's like packed all this into like a couple of sentences. We're just halfway through. He's not even done. He's saying, look, I got more. I've got more. This is just part of what Jesus, the magnitude is unmeasurable. One of those moments where I'm like breaking my keyboard as I'm typing this, you know, I'm like sitting in a local coffee shop, all hopped up on caffeine and hopped up on the magnitude of Jesus, probably just pounding, holding all the world together. I don't know what I looked like over in the corner. Hopefully I didn't do anything weird. Probably didn't know I was a pastor over there writing a sermon because when you look like me, you don't usually get profiled as a pastor type. I uh, recently went to the doctor. And, uh, you know, they ask you the beginning questions. It was a new doctor. They said, uh, you know, any, any medicines you take, vitamins, whatever. It's like this, this, whatever. You use any street drugs? It's like, street drugs? Not even drugs, like street drugs. You look like somebody would use a lot of street drugs. It's like, is that on the sheet? Can I see the sheet? Or is that just for me? <laughs> Anywho, everybody Good. You ready to keep going? Let's dive in further, see how far this rabbit hole goes. Number five, Jesus is the head of the church, Paul says. Paul describes the church as the body of Christ. He does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
It says, for just as the body is one, it has many members. And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul tells the Corinthians here that all believers from all ethnicities and all walks of life make up the body of Christ. And Paul says here that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Now think about how important the head is in the human body. It's where the brain is located. The, the head is crucial. You lop off the head, it's done. You got nothing. Look at this quote I found from kidshealth.org. Now, before you laugh, I just couldn't handle grownuphealth.org. It's too confusing. But kidshealth.org, very simple. Faith like a child says, the brain controls what we think and feel, how we learn and remember, and the way we move and talk. Here's the kicker. It also controls things we're less aware of, like the beating of our hearts, the digestion of our food. So my question is, <laughs> what else is there? The brain's basically got it all. The brain is controlling it all. And Paul says that Jesus is the head of the church. He leads and provides and sustains and maintains his church. Number six, he is preeminent, Paul says. Jesus is preeminent. Look back in our text, Colossians 1. Look at verse 18. Paul says he's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Well, slow down and just look at this word preeminent. You know, I have this running joke with my wife that I know way more vocabulary words than she does, but she knows like twice as many definitions than I do. So like when I see a word preeminent, I'm like, I know that one. Couldn't exactly, I can feel what it means, but I, don't, I can't explicitly say what it means. So it, it's like, and it also it looks like preeminent, kind of like uh, cooperation. It's like, dude, that's cooperation. I don't know what you're seeing, but preeminent, let's dive into it. It literally means surpassing all others. So Jesus is preeminent, surpassing all others, very distinguished in some way, having paramount or supreme rank, dignity or importance to have the first place, to be chief, Paul says that Jesus is preeminent. He's the beginning, the origin. He's the first above all others. He entered the mess of humanity. He lived, he died on the cross for sin, rose from the grave as the firstborn from the dead, ascended back to heaven and reigns as the preeminent king of kings, Lord of lords. Nothing can stand against. There is no other. Jesus is supreme. And when Paul says this phrase, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, he's referring to his resurrection. He opens the way for all who trust him to follow in a resurrection just like his when he returns to make all things new. So Paul says he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is the reason that we preach about Jesus and sing about Jesus every week in our church gatherings because Jesus surpasses all others. He's very distinguished. He has paramount and supreme rank, dignity and importance. He has the first place. He is chief over all things. His glory and exaltation is the whole point of everything that exists. 
Jesus is preeminent in everything. Number seven, Paul says that he embodies the fullness of God. And remember when Paul was writing this, this wasn't too long after Jesus and his public ministry and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so he's like, look, Jesus, the man from Nazareth that you've heard about, he embodied the fullness of Yahweh. Jesus was fully man and fully God. Look at verse 19 in our text. Paul says, for in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul's use of this idea of fullness could be connected to the glory of God filling the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. And commentators were like, look, even if it doesn't specifically mean that when Paul was writing that, even that that wasn't specifically what he meant, it still applies and serves as a, as a good illustration. And we think back when Moses finished building the tabernacle, it says that the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Wouldn't it have been cool to be around to watch that happen? And when Solomon finished building the temple in Jerusalem, it says that fire came down from the sky and burn up the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled and consumed the temple. If you think Fourth of July fireworks are awesome, can you imagine what Solomon saw? And after Jerusalem was destroyed, God gave Ezekiel a vision for a new temple. And in this vision, he saw the glory of the Lord filling the temple. All these guys, all three of these men saw the glory of the Lord filling a structure. And in a similar way, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary and Joseph's son, through miraculous conception, was filled with all the fullness of Yahweh. He was God in the flesh, God, the one who spoke creation into being, holds it together by his power, was now walking the earth. Here's the crazy thing, though. Almost everybody missed it. God was there on the scene, and they missed it. John chapter 1 says, He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. But here's good news for us today. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not just servants welcoming, welcoming us in as servants just so we could be in the proximity of, of, of benefit, but children adopted forever families in the house of Yahweh. Jesus embodies the fullness of God. Last thing Paul tells us when he's putting Jesus on display, says he's the prince of peace who will reconcile all things to himself. Look at verse 19 and 20. Paul writes, for in Jesus, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
The cross of Jesus was the pivotal point in history where our salvation was secured and evil was officially given an expiration date. I think Paul is speaking of the glorious and ultimate end of all things where Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is going to make everything right. And in that environment, those who believe in Jesus will be fully reconciled and dwelling with him. No more faith. Can you imagine that as a believer? No more faith. I mean, it's, it's there now. Literally dwelling with him. The enemy will be officially and completely defeated. All evil will be extinguished and done away with. Death and suffering will be no more. All tears will be wiped away. The dwelling place of God will be with man and he will make all things new and right. It's a pretty amazing reality if you think about it. That's our hope. That's why we're able to fight through the day because the hope of tomorrow, the hope of heaven is so strong. So this is Jesus on display. Paul's showcasing Jesus. Look at Jesus, he said. Let me show him to you. Are you seeing Jesus? And so he gives them these eight things. He's the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, created all things for his glory. He's before all things and holds all things together. He's the head of the church. He is preeminent and supreme over all things. He embodies the fullness of God. He's the prince of peace who will reconcile all things to himself. This is the real and glorious Jesus. This is why we gather and sing, gather and preach and come together. So Paul's like a tour guide. He's led us up this high mountain to this majestic view, showcasing the magnitude and the supremacy of King Jesus. And then Paul turns around, looks up, looks us in the eye, says, okay, now let's talk about you. What does this mean for you? Because when (laughs) broken, sinful people encounter and come into the presence of the magnitude of the preeminent Jesus, you may kind of want to start cowering away and crawl into the hole of shame. I shouldn't be here. This is too great like this. No, I I shouldn't be here. But now Paul is saying, now let me talk about you for a minute. Let me put the gospel on display. Let's get back to our text, verse 21. And you, Paul says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul puts the gospel on display. The word gospel means good news. (laughs) It's great news. But in order to receive how good it is, Paul's got to... Give us a reminder of how bad the bad news was for sinners like us. So Paul talks about our natural condition 
as fallen sinners. And in past tense language, amen, past tense language, he speaks of things that once were true about us who trust in Jesus now. He says you were alienated from God. Alienated. You were estranged. You were excluded. You were cut off. You were separated from God. You didn't belong. You couldn't belong. You were not allowed. You, were, <laughs> you could not be there, separated. Earlier in our text, Paul said you were trapped in a domain or a dungeon of darkness. You were stuck naturally in a devastating and hopeless situation, alienated from God. And even more than that, Paul says you were hostile in mind. Not only were you alienated, but you were angry. You were hostile. You're an enemy of God. You were the opposition to God. You were an adversary of God. And whether literally or figuratively in your heart, you were shaking your angry fists at God. That's the, that's the natural condition of sinners like us. And even more than that, Paul says, you're doing evil deeds. You were alienated. You're hostile. You're evil. Slaves to sin, following the ways of Satan. Evil in every way. And Ephesians tells us we were children of wrath. That's as bad as bad news can possibly get. That's a devastating condition. But guess what the preeminent King Jesus did in response to you, his enemy? He came after you. Not with his sword drawn and aimed at your neck to put you away like you deserved, but he came with his hands extending grace and mercy to his enemies. That's the gospel. That's the good news. He came after us, not to destroy us, but to save us. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Listen, Jesus left the glory of heaven where he existed for all eternity. He became human. He put on flesh. He entered the mess. He lived among sinful people. He was born in a stinky stable with farm animals. He was unnoticed and mistaken. He was ignored. He was mistreated and mocked. He was betrayed by his friend. He was tortured and beaten. He was nailed to a rugged cross so that we would be reconciled to God, so that we would be rescued and delivered, no longer alienated, no longer excluded, no longer enemies, no longer children of wrath. We've been forgiven and reconciled and adopted as children into the family of God because of what this preeminent Jesus has done for us on his cross. Jesus is now presenting us before the Father as holy and blameless and above approach. These are with me, he's saying. I paid for these, he said. These are no longer guilty. I'm bringing these into the family. These are with me. These are precious. These are now children of God, no longer alienated. They've been brought in. They've been covered in my righteousness. This is good news. And it's as good as good can possibly get. So what Paul has done for us today is he's put Jesus and the gospel on display. 
He showcased it for us so we can taste and see how good and glorious it is. So as we close today, the application is just very, very simple. Do you know this Jesus? Do you trust this Jesus? Do you worship this Jesus? Or is it some weak, counterfeit alternative? Do you believe this gospel that Paul is writing about? This type of radical, glorious mercy and grace being extended to enemies who should have been blown away, but they've been covered and brought into the family to thrive as children. This is the real good news. So I urge you, as Paul did, continue in the faith, stable, steadfast as a community, as a church. Don't shift from the hope of this gospel. Don't get distracted. Don't chase something else that looks shiny or good. Nothing compares. This is as good as it gets. So let's worship and trust the real preeminent King Jesus together.